0: to Ray Charles, our special July 4th edition, and we're about to throw to Jesse in a minute, but I just wanted to start always on July 4th, where you should, and if you don't own 1776 by David McCullough, you should. And the introductory line is just worth reading, and then we're going to get into some nonsense about fireworks, and why we celebrate. And this is from General George Washington, January 14, 1776. And he writes in his journal that day, the reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. And as we learned from McCullough, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And ever since 1776, we've been moving toward a more perfect union. And one of the things that we do on July 4th is we blow stuff up. We love it. From New York City to San Francisco, rural hamlets all across this country, homemade stuff, the real stuff, big-time companies doing it, and everything in between, we throw to Jesse for everything you need to know about fireworks.
1: As early as 200 B.C., the Chinese were riding on green bamboo stalks and heating it on coals to dry. Sometimes, if left for too long over the heat, the wood would expand and even burst with a bang. And thus, the firecracker. Over heat, the wood would expand and even burst with a bang. And thus, the firecracker was born. Chinese alchemists later mixed potassium nitrate with sulfur and charcoal, stumbling upon the crude chemical recipe for gunpowder. Stuffing bamboo tubes with gunpowder created a sort of sparkler. The Chinese also took traditional bamboo sparklers and attached them to arrows to rain down on their enemies. There are also accounts of fireworks being strapped to rats for use in medieval warfare. A modern firework requires three key components. An oxidizer, a fuel, and a chemical mixture to produce the color. The oxidizer breaks the chemical bonds in the fuel, releasing all of the energy that's stored in those bonds. Firework color concoctions are comprised of different metal elements. Different chemicals burn at different wavelengths of light. Lithium compounds produce deep reds, copper produces blues, titanium and magnesium burn silver or white, calcium creates an orange color, sodium produces yellow, and finally barium produces green. Layers of organic salt and potassium burn one at a time. As each layer burns, it slowly releases a gas, creating the whistling sound associated with most firework rockets. Aluminum or iron flakes can create a hissing or sizzling sparkles, while titanium powder can create loud blasts in addition to white sparks. Some of the very first Independence Day celebrations involved fireworks. On July 4th, 1777, Philadelphia put together an elaborate day of festivities that included a 13 cannon display, a parade, a fancy dinner, toasts, music, musket salutes, and of course fireworks. After a series of fireworks shenanigans in 1731, officials in Rhode Island outlawed the use of fireworks for mischievous ends. No one plans on having an accident, least of all this pretty little thing. At the turn of the 20th century, the Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noise campaigned against the use of fireworks, and their efforts are largely responsible for the first fireworks regulations in the United States. Mm, you suck. Yeah. Two states, Delaware and Massachusetts, ban the sale and use of all consumer fireworks, including novelties and sparklers. Sixteen states, Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Idaho, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, New Jersey, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Virginia, Wisconsin, and the District of Columbia, allow the sale and use of non aerial and non explosive fireworks, also called safe and sane, also called sissy fireworks, like novelties, fountains, and sparklers. During the 4th of July, Americans light about 175 million pounds of fireworks, which is equivalent to about 100,000 lightning bolts. On a typical 4th of July, approximately 2 out of 5 reported fires are caused by fireworks. Males account for 57% of private firework injuries in the United States. Females are injured more often at public firework displays. The largest fireworks show in the United States is the Macy's Light Up the Night Show in New York over the Hudson River on July 4th. The show includes over 40,000 shells, and more than 3 million people watch the spectacle. The Boston Firework Display for the 4th is one of the most expensive shows at a record 2.5 million. The Washington, D.C. 4th of July Firework Show draws over 500,000 spectators as well as a national TV viewing audience. Because the large show discharges over 33 tons of fireworks, several agencies are required to monitor it including the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the Federal Aviation Administration, Secret Service, D.C. Fire and Police Departments, National Parks and Services, and its police department.
2: This is really all it takes. Accidents could practically be eliminated.
1: And one more firework fun fact for our 4th of July special. People who make firework shells are required to wear cotton clothing, even cotton underwear. Ah because synthetic underwear can cause sparks from static that could detonate fireworks. And there's a bunch of useless nonsense about fireworks. Happy Fourth of July. And thanks for that, Jesse. And if you ever get a chance, get to New York City, to New
0: York Harbor, go on the Jersey side. Go to Jersey City, the backdrop, the Statue of Liberty, the Macy's Day fireworks. Over the Statue of Liberty and the New York City skyline. There is nothing like it. About a million people line up on the Jersey side. About two to three million from all over the world. Come, do it one day with your family. Take them to the big city and see the 4th of July at its best. Coming up, citizens. Well, new citizens taking the Oath of Allegiance. The naturalization of American citizens. Coming up after these messages. This is Our American Stories, a special July 4th edition, and we sent the crew up to Memphis to a naturalization ceremony, and we met some new Americans, and this is important to us, and particularly to me, my grandfather, who was blessed to come to this country, Ellis Island from southern Italy, and my other side from Lebanon, and both of them, both grandparents would haul me over to Jersey City and have me watch and meet new immigrants, because they didn't think we appreciated anything, we Americans who were born here. We hadn't fought to come here. We hadn't gone through the trials and tribulations of coming here. And I heard the war stories all day. The ship ride over, the boat ride over, Ellis Island for weeks, the processing, the testing, the little bit of language skills, and the name changes. And both sides, the names were changed. Uh, but all for the American dream. And it happens every year, every day here in this country. Again, the crew went up. And let's go to Alex
3: first. Alex, what did you find up in Memphis? Sure, the first person I spoke with was a Nigerian immigrant named Wilson Echo who arrived in the southern state of Arkansas, of all places, in Paragold, Arkansas. Interesting question, I hope you don't mind me asking, is... Gold. You know, be an African... Arkansas. I mean, a lot of... Interesting question, I hope you don't mind me asking, it. Is, the, question, you asking it, is um, Sure. You know, be an African, I mean, a lot of the north in the United States, as I'm sure you know, thinks the south is very racist, you know. And oh. what's your experience, you know, in Arkansas as, you know, as an African I... man? of you.
4: I have not witnessed uh, that much. People say, you know, especially if Perigold, they say, where in the world? Why did you end up in Perigold? Why are you living there? But personally, I have not witnessed, you know, things like that. Yeah. You know, I have met great people at the church, you know, school and workplaces, you know. Yeah. Not that you can see some, but that one is everywhere in the world. Yeah. You know, you can meet some bad people, but when one or two people, uh, you know, they they don't agree with you or they have some yeah, I I would say that I, I have had a great and will continue to have great uh, people around me.
3: Wilson actually had a pretty good scrap metal business in Nigeria. That is until the government forced him to shut it down. He also told me how the government would kidnap and assassinate his countrymen who had spoken against them. Given his past success, I was curious what his first job in America was and was he worried at all about getting work when he arrived?
4: I came here in uh, 2006, September 15th, actually. Mm-hmm. Then the next day, that was on Wednesday, the next day I was already, uh, I had a, my first job. What was it? Uh, I started with the roofing the uh, building then
3: do you remember what you were paid with that first roofing job
4: oh he's <laughs> a uh, one of our church member he actually I was so happy you know he, you know I walked out very day he gave me hundred dollars he took us to uh, uh, you know, you know, he bought me some paint and shoes. You know, I was like, "Wow, hundred dollars! That's know? a lot." You're like this. Holy cow.
3: <laughs> so, the guy I featured on our dishwasher, and his first job here was as a dishwasher. The next day, making two dollars an hour, you're wow. so happy, and I'm like, I'm literally making more than ninety-nine percent of the people of Pakistan wow. at this. But wow. I mean, hundred dollars is right. incredible oh, for your yeah. first day
4: of work. Right? Yeah, he he uh, he was so thrilled by the things I did that day. You know, I put shingles on my head carried up to the stairs you know to the roof he said can I do that again I put it on my head again climbed without holding it you know so came back down then put a bucket of nails on my head without touching it climbed up to the roof again (laughs) came down he said wow do you know that you can make money doing this just alone (laughs) so he was so trailed you know by the things that I was doing you know
3: Gosh, I would be so afraid of putting a bucket of nails on my head going up to a roof. It's also one of the great untold stories about churches here in this country helping out new immigrants, and you'll hear that more as we go through. Um, I then asked Wilson about what he's doing now for work.
4: I'm still in the process in my school, uh, going to school and, uh, you know, to be a nurse. Oh, cool. Right. They, but uh, I'm a welder, a painter, you know. What makes they, you want to be a nurse? Oh, to help people. I love seeing people happy, you know, especially when you are able to help them in their need.
3: Hearing something like that will just light up your day. Um, I next spoke with an Indian woman named Robbie and her eldest child, Malika, who was being naturalized that day. And when, when Malika was just three years old, Robbie and her husband moved their family to the United States. And I asked why.
5: I did come because I wanted my kids to grow up in a, to grow up in a free country yeah. that was more open. How is so it not things. free in India? It is free, but the type, place I come from is Kashmir.
3: Okay, got it. For well, so folks who don't know, tell, tell them about Kashmir.
5: What? It, it's it's difficult to say much about it. There's a little bit of a civil war going on there. Yeah. It's kind of scary to let kids grow up. I guess that's what it is. I guess I'm saying something too political. Is that right? No, no, no,
3: no, it's all right. Do you just see a lot of violence I mean, around you? Yes. The,
5: yes. We were scared to raise kids there.
3: A little civil war. That's a little bit of an understatement, Lee. Kashmir is an area that is disputed among India, Pakistan, and China. And there have been several declared wars between India and Pakistan over it, with around fifty to 100,000 people dying in that conflict. The exact number is uncertain because so many have disappeared. I then spoke with Malika, who's now 18 years old.
6: I'm in college right now, and I want to serve in the military for oh, a couple wow. years after. And Why? maybe go to law school. Um, I really love this country and I feel like it's done a lot for me and I want to give back in like whatever way I can and I know that sounds a little silly but I also like growing up my dad every day was basically like Malika you have to love this country but you also have to like be brave enough to criticize it to like change it to like you know know what's good what's bad what needs like where the gap is because like this country has so much potential.
3: What do you want to do in the military?
6: Uh, hopefully become an intelligence officer, but you don't really get to pick. Yeah. It's, like, whatever the Army needs.
3: What does um, this day
6: mean to you? It didn't really hit me until last week. And, like, I kind of started crying the other night because I was like, wow, it's a big day. Because, like, I've always felt like I belong because I came here when I was three. Yeah. And I've never really felt... Like, I wasn't American, but, like, to have it on paper, to, like, be able to vote, I'm so excited to be able to do that.
3: How cool that she wants to serve in the military. It makes me seem like a schmuck <laughs> not having served, but here's she, this new immigrant, really loving this country. I also spoke with Stefan Boy, a Dutch immigrant living in Arkansas, too, and he told me that he was surprised by Southern hospitality and that it was a real thing. He came over here with nothing, and folks would lend them their car so that he can go grocery shopping. A simple thing, but it meant a lot to him. And one of the things I made sure to ask him was how he was celebrating today along with his wife and kids who were with him.
7: We connected with our friends
8: from from, uh, Nashville. And we're just going to party for the whole weekend. Yeah. So it's going to be probably Yinglings and the pool.
9: Because
8: <laughs> yeah. I don't have Yinglings in Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> so every time we come
3: to Memphis, we have to have Yinglings. Yinglings. Um, is it the oldest beer in and America? And it's the oldest right? beer in America. So Is that your attachment to it or is it your favorite beer? Uh, it is one of my favorite beers.
0: And great job on this, Alex. And we're going to hear more from the crew. And Wilson Echo, you find this from recent uh, African migrants. And I've been doing this for years myself. And they come here, and you ask them about racism in America, and they look at you funny. Like, what planet are you from? And particularly in the South. And I'm here in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, and there's a, a little university called Ole Miss here. And when you go to the Southern Culture Center, all they ever talk about are the ghosts of the past and this radically racist land. And, I, and mostly, by the way, they're white uh, progressive professors. Uh, but I, I'd love to have the professors talk to Wilson to echo particularly about his homeland, what he escaped, what he came to, and what he really thinks about the South and about his own country. That's what we do here on Our American Stories, not our words, not our opinions. Wilson echoes opinion about his new home, his his dream home. And one more thing before we go to break. Here's what all of these folks read together at this naturalization ceremony. It's the Oath of Allegiance. And my goodness, every American citizen should have to read this. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. Wow that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, and that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More stories from Memphis. New Americans being born voluntarily from every corner of the earth. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, our special July 4th edition. And we sent the crew up to Memphis to meet new Americans, people from all over the world, 30 countries, 70 new citizens. And by the way, if you've not gone, take the family and then let your kids hear the circumstances that brought people here. And let these people hear and tell their stories to you. You tell your stories to them. It's as beautiful a thing as you can do with your kids, with your family. And I'll tell you, I'll promise you, you'll cry at least once, maybe twice. And you'll maybe have more gratitude for all you have here in this great country. And let's return now to Alex. What else do you have for us, Alex?
3: Well, yeah, I then next spoke with one person for a longer amount of time. And this person actually took part in the formal naturalization ceremony in what we might see as a small way. But it wasn't to him.
7: Isaac James. All right, Isaac.
3: Oh, yeah, you did the pledge, right? I did. I did. How did you get chosen for that?
7: Uh, one kid got nervous and said no, so I was up next. Yeah, <laughs> you were just sitting right next to <laughs> him? Yeah, I was sitting right next to him. She asked, <laughs> and I was like, why not? Why are you nervous? Why was I nervous? No, why weren't you nervous? Oh, I, it's something very exciting. It's an exciting day. Yeah. Uh, so the Pledge of Allegiance is something very significant to the United States, and I feel as if to say it means that I'm officially a part of the United States, and so I'm very excited to say it. Where are you originally from, Isaac? Kenya. Okay, and how did you get over here? Uh, we came over as refugees, okay. and so I was actually born in, in a refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, my family is from Sudan, and okay. due to the Civil War in Sudan, we had to seek refuge in Kenya. Okay. And so we came over in 2001. How so. old were you? Three I was more? four. Okay, four.
3: so you do not really remember? It I don't all.
7: remember much of it. Um, I, can, uh, I have pictures in the back of my head about um, just sort of the atmosphere of it, but I don't really know in depth of what. Uh, that area consisted of yeah. but
3: can you tell me any more about the pictures in your head from the uh,
7: well pretty much um, I picture myself uh, just being out um, in the refugee camp and I remember the huts and everything and as a kid I know I remember you know walking around naked and just <laughs> playing around you know just doing kids things and uh, just playing soccer and hanging out with uh, all the refugee children from different countries um, in that that one refugee camp
3: that actually, you know, kind of must have been cool. What's so funny about life is if that's where you grew up and yeah. you were born, you have no context yeah, nope. for what the rest of the world exactly. is like. Kind of talk about that? Exactly.
7: The context? Yeah, yeah just um, how you,
3: you have no context that, you know, other people grew up in a different way. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're born, you don't. That's you all don't. you know. Yeah, so
7: that's all I knew. It's um, all I knew. Just that area of my... Um, and just that area of my... Ran is ran. That's, all, ran is ran. that's all I knew. That I knew that the world was, and so <clears throat> coming to the United States. I mean, the United States has way more than what refugee camp in Kenya has, and so it was a cultural shock. It was a, a society change. Um, it was just something different and something new, something exhilarating that I never really experienced. Um, and I grew up in the United States, and so I've become to really become accustomed to the American way of life. Um, so that's very exciting. Where did you guys
3: move to in the U.S.?
7: We moved um, so through the United Nations, um, we were relocated in Memphis. Oh, really? Yeah. So the UN relocates refugees in different parts of the world, and we were relocated in Memphis. So they know
3: why Memphis for you was. Just no luck. idea.
7: I guess just luck. Very luck.
3: So the United Nations played a role. Did they help set up housing, or where did you guys kind of live, or how did you know? Tell me about how your parents yeah, so the, kind of started their life. Yeah. Here.
7: The UN relocates, and then we got involved with Catholic charities. Uh-huh. And um, they really became our foundation for the first three to six months. Um, they the one, they were the ones that took my mom and our family to our um, health appointments. So they took us to the doctors. Um, they got us to our appointments with uh, immigration. And so they're the ones that really, uh, really set our foundation here on the United States and made sure that uh, where we were at the moment was stable.
3: Yeah. So and you were fine after six months. You were stable enough to go off on your own and well yeah life?
7: after six months uh they expected us or my parent my mom to have a job and sort of uh have that income to where she could um pay for the rent and utilities and stuff like that um but they uh, they continue to check on check up on us after that just to make sure that um we were becoming accustomed to the american way and we were developing in our english and doing well in our schools
3: yeah well your english was great uh, yeah do you remember what your mom's first job was when she came here
7: she actually by trade she's a carpenter by trade Your so mom? in Africa, yeah, so in Africa she did carpentry when she mm-hmm. came over um, she did carpentry as well, but she's also a cleaning lady uh, my mom is isn't the most literate individual uh-huh. uh, due to the fact that she didn't um, advance far enough in uh, in high school or middle school and so um, the best job she could get was, you know, in her trade and then cleaning, yeah. uh, which didn't require much um, literacy. Well, she's got to be immensely proud how literate you are. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She, she's, uh, she believes she's in American dream, uh, and so she pushes me. She believes in her other four kids to American dream. And so she pushes me and her other four kids to uh, take advantage of the opportunity we have. And that's our goal, to take advantage.
3: Are female carpenters more common in Africa than here? Um, I mean, you must yeah. know how rare it is yeah. here. Yeah,
7: it's very rare here, very rare here. But in Africa, um, carpentry is one of those things that is a necessity. Yeah. And when you talk about job opportunities that are in these areas, carpentry is um, one that that is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so she took up that as a trade and really just honed in her skills and developed. Yeah.
3: What are you doing right now, Isaac? I'm in school. Okay, I'm in school. I- so
7: I went to... Evangelical Christian School huh? uh, in Cordova, Tennessee. I graduated there, went to Jackson State Community College for three years, got my associates. Then I'm going down to Rollins College in Orlando, Florida to get my bachelor's.
3: Oh, so, man. Rollins is in, uh, what's the town, Winter Park? Winter Park, oh, yeah. beautiful. So-
7: <laughs>
3: man, one of the best places in this yeah, country. Yeah, I'm excited about it's it. It's cool. Um, what do you want to do for work?
7: Uh, I'm a business major, okay. and so I really hope to go back and impact the area with what I've learned in the business field in, Here in the United States. Yeah, in Memphis, United States in general, um, and really just take back the skills that I have and develop uh, that third world economy. Um, and at the end of the day, if I could get a position with the United Nations, um, and they have like an economic development uh, department, and I would love to be a part of that, um, and really just give my life to serving those that are in refugee camps because i've been there i've experienced it my mother has experienced it and we know just just sort of the atrocities that the individuals in those camps have experienced and so they need hope and they need to be given hope and if i can be a part of that that's that's okay with me to give my life to that and that'd so you're be to exciting pay forward for, yeah. for you. yeah absolutely that's absolutely. beautiful Isaac. Yeah. thank you
3: how are you celebrating today
7: how am i celebrating today um, I have work at 4 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your work today? I work at Chickasaw Country Club. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. What kind of work are you doing? I am a uh, bus boy. Okay. Um, so I, I clean up after uh, when individuals get done with their meals. Yeah. Um, and I also just do general labor around the area.
3: Tell me about that experience. What have you learned from doing it? And I, I used to be a caddy at a country yeah.
7: club, so I, I, yeah. I know the service industry. Uh-huh. I mean,
3: talk about what you've learned from it.
7: Yeah, like... like being in the service industry is very humbling. Um, very humbling. Um, I've enjoyed it in the fact that I've made new friends and um, and I've really developed my selfless servitude. Um, and a lot of times, people look at those jobs as um, as something that to look down upon because you know they're, they're yeah. service. You know, they're they're busboys. They're doing the dirty work. But at the end of the day, is those people um that are willing to uh serve others that keeps the world going that keeps yeah. uh, the economy that keeps the society going yeah. and so i'm very proud um and honored to be a part of that
0: and great job on that alex in the voice of isaac my goodness be still my heart something exhilarating he said about coming to this country you don't hear an ounce of victim status here no self-pity work he's working he's working he's advancing himself and he's serving others And this is what we can learn from all of these immigrants. This is what I learned. I was not allowed to complain in my house, and I knew why. Granddad took me to meet these people, and it just wasn't possible after meeting these people. From the Sudan, from everywhere around the world, more after these messages from a Memphis naturalization ceremony, our special 4th of July ceremony here on Our American Stories. is our american stories and our final segment on our special fourth of july newly minted americans people from all over the world 30 countries over 70 newly sworn american citizens and boy the age range is remarkable from the teens all the way as we'll find out from faith the 80s but alex take it away what do you
3: have next I spoke with a brother and sister duo named Jose and Maria Garcia. They were originally from Guanajuato, Mexico, and their dad was a farmer there, and I asked them what motivated their family to come here.
8: Here, you know you got an opportunity to grow and try to be somebody. And and over there, you're stuck with it. If you're going to farm, you can make enough to just live day by day, but you have no future. And then if you ever have family, it's going to be the same process. Because over there, I feel like, It's just so hard to go anywhere, you know, staying at a farm because whenever you do have a good crop, they don't pay you good for it. And when the crop is high, you don't have enough crop to sell, you know. So I think it's just just so hard to make a living over there.
3: One of the things we talked about, too, is it's it's one thing for the dad to go through that tough life. But for him to know that his kids would have that same awful life on the farm is just soul crushing and, and why they came here. Now, it turns out the family didn't come all at once, and I asked them about their arrival and how old they were.
10: I was eight. Okay. I'm two years older than him, so I was eight. And then, and then my dad had come here way before we did, so he would just go back and forth. So we really? didn't see him all the time.
3: Did he ever tell you stories of when he was here alone or how much he was living on when he was over
10: here? I don't know how much he was living on, but, I mean, he just tells how... he Basically, all he did was work. That's all he did when he was here by himself. Because he would go to work from pretty much from sunrise to sunset, and then go home or go, like, they would go to Walmart once a week, get the lunch. It was just a bunch of guys living together. They pretty much did the same thing. It was them here and their families
6: over there.
8: Well, I think with him, the hardest thing was leaving us. You know, he would go back three months, come back six, make enough money to go back another three months. Because, you know, he was supporting a family and then thinking about going back three months without, you know, you would farm but only make enough to go live. But, you know, you always be thinking about what if one of the guys in the family gets sick or something. You know, he has to have enough money to cover that, the expenses and all this. So it was hard for him leaving us, I think, and it was hard for my mom, you know, staying over there and taking care of us while he was here. But he would be sending money back, you know, once a week, uh, a certain amount of his paycheck. you know, he would send it back home and try to save the other one forever whenever he did go. And, you know, just making that trip every year gets expensive. This traveling expenses. Thanks to his sacrifice, we're here. So we're like, you know, we need to take advantage of it. Because you know how many people would would die for having the opportunity to come to this to the place, you know? Because it's a great place to be. Now that we're all here, we all, we've been sticking like a family pretty good. So we've all worked better to, you know, if one of us gets a little money we try to help all the rest of them so that's how we've been but yeah we always thank him for you know the sacrifice he did because it was a big one
3: <laughs> maria also told me that she actually didn't really know her dad until they came to the us from that time apart together she really didn't know him until so they were all here as a family we finally i spoke with a guy born in pakistan named mohammed and he told me he came to the united states for more opportunity and I was curious what opportunities he has here that he didn't have there.
11: Well, I, um, I'm a physician by profession, and yes, Pakistan do have excellent physicians over there. But yes, there are, the training opportunities are limited over there. So for me, it was a, an excellent chance to come and pursue that and to be more, uh, you know, helpful in, in terms of serving humanity, getting better trained.
3: And we often just think about the low skill immigrants, but we often don't think about the high end people like Mohammed who are already. You know, things like physicians and want to come here and and have even more opportunity. Um, This same day actually happened to be his graduation from his residency in family medicine. And he's now going to geriatrics fellowship to specialize in treating older people. And we next spoke about the differences between the United States and Pakistan. And he first told me how much he enjoys exploring nature here and that there's much more to explore. An answer that I was not expecting. And then Mohammed said this.
11: There are several things that you cannot say openly, like, you know, when it comes to expressing your views about anything, may it be religion, may it be no. people, you have to be very cautious about what you're saying, because, you know, because of the poor law and order situation over there, yeah. you can't take a risk your life. But here, as long as you're not, uh, you're obeying the laws, you can express yourself. So that's what I like about it here.
3: Mohammed briefly mentioned the freedom of religious expression here in the United States, the expression of Pakistan. Here in the United States, that Pakistan doesn't have, and I wanted to explore this more with them.
11: There are different divisions of Islam over there, and uh, it's not that I was afraid of anything, but it's just that uh, you know we need to be more diverse in terms of uh, respecting other religions, also. Sometimes they don't get that kind of respect over there, mm-hmm. like other religions, especially. So, that is interesting to see over here that you know people can be from any religion and they're being you know, uh, encouraged to practice the way they want, as long as they are not harming anyone else.
0: And by the way, Pakistan has what's called a blasphemy law, where if you speak something the government considers false about Islam, even if you're a Muslim yourself, you can be punished all the way up to a death sentence. And it's also considered blasphemous against the law to publicly declare being an atheist. And now imagine America having this and giving the government that kind of power. So one of the reasons we like doing this is you get to hear about what life's like somewhere else. Talk about the First Amendment, the most important rights, uh, the right to free expression, and of course the right to follow your conscience and practice your religion as you see fit, or not at all. And now our own Faith Garcia brings us her conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. brings us her conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. What do you got for us, Faith?
10: Yeah, I was able to speak with a woman who was from Mexico, who became a citizen herself just a few years ago. But she was actually there for her mother's naturalization, who was 80 years old.
5: My mom has been in the United States um, 12 years, 12 years, and um, recently well, she decided to become an American citizen. What, um, what made the change? Why? Um, she loves the country, and she's really happy here. So she don't want to have trouble back and forth because she, we have more family in Mexico, and she likes it back and forth. So in this way, she don't have to have more issues about limited of time.
10: So is this more
5: emotional for you or for her, do you think? For everybody. <laughs> it was a good experience for the whole family because everybody participated. Even my grandbabies participate. Everybody helped her to learn about the questions, about everything, you know. So everybody's really excited about today's days. And she's 80? She's 80. She turned 80 last November. The first time when she went to do the test, she passed the question, the civic question. And we was everybody surprised because we were expecting she failed. But she knew every question. She actually failed in the personal questions. So we say, how's possible? But she was so nervous, you know. But the second time was really nice and easy, and she passed. So she's here. (laughs) Yeah.
10: And what was your name, and what is your name? My name is
5: Adriana Roman, and her name is Graciela Carcam. Graciela. Mm -hmm. Yes. She don't have words to describe, because she's still thinking, this is like a dream. I don't think this happened to me, you know. But it is happening. So it's really nice. And I think it's not just my mom. All these people is here. They go through the same experience. It is a lot of work to put into to become a citizen. A lot of people don't understand what it means. When you tell them you have to learn these questions, a lot of Americans don't even know the answers. They say, what is this? I don't even know. This is history, you know. And it's, it's accomplishing when you are uh, for another country and you become American. is. Yeah, it's a drink control.
0: true. And finally, our Hillsdale intern, Colby, brings us his conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. What do you got for us, Colby?
7: Well, when I was there, Lee, there was this guy, his name's Hamadi Hassan. He was uh, wearing this very traditional coat that was some African country. And when I went up to him, it turns out he's from Kenya, which is an East African country. He was born in a refugee camp, and he really wanted to share his story with me. He was very eager and excited. And this is it.
12: When I was coming here, I was younger, so I'm pretty sure as I was watching my parents, the process was a little longer and harder. But it got easier and easier, and we, we finally arrived.
8: You know, it was it was good. Well, uh, like what's what's going to be like the most exciting thing to be a citizen?
12: Just thinking about how far we have come, you know, from the struggle of going out and finding food to where. You could have a better job opportunities to work, and the food is right around the corner, so you have stores everywhere. Where I'm from, stores are miles away, and no transportation. You literally have to walk 20, 30 miles, depending on where you where you live at. You know. it's just, it's really, I'm really excited, you know, becoming a citizen. Sometimes it gets emotional that I'm here,
8: you know. Do you still have family in Kenya? I
12: still have family till today. My grandmas and cousins and aunties, some of them still back there, you know. We communicate, we're able to send money back to you know, help help them out. But I'm really excited to be here.
8: And uh, what's like the fourth of July gonna mean for
12: you this upcoming summer? Oh man. We're gonna be celebrating. we food everywhere, barbecue, we'll celebrate, especially that I'm becoming a citizen too. This is be one of the biggest holidays of my life
0: now. You know? One of the biggest holidays of my life. And what you hear throughout this entire hour, folks, is gratitude. And you can't have love without gratitude, appreciation without gratitude. We heard from Jose Garcia. And my goodness, he said, you have no future where I was from. It's so hard to go anywhere. So hard to make a living over there. And he was talking about his home country of Mexico. And all he did, his daughter said, all my dad did was work. Sacrificial love, that's what you hear over and over and over here. This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories. Great job to the whole crew, and this will be an annual tradition. Heading up to hear from new citizens every year, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on this day, we're celebrating not just our country, but we're also celebrating those who've chosen to come to America in spite of political and geographic barriers. We're going to hear a story from Faith, and we've been sending her to the Villages, Florida for some time now, a retirement community with over 150,000 residents, residents from every type of background. On her most recent trip, she talked to a woman named Sylvia. Sylvia starts out talking about why she originally didn't want to move to the villages.
2: My name is Sylvia Lorenz. I used to be Sylvia
6: Galova. How did you end up here?
2: My husband, uh, he was on a church choir, and somebody on a church choir was talking about the villages. villages. Oh, you know, this and that. And uh, my husband described that to me and I said, oh, but I don't like any kind of rules. I don't know if I would like that. You know, it seems it's too rigid. I hate dogmas. I can't stand that. Yes, I'm always opposed to any rules.
10: Sylvia is very different from most of the other villagers I've talked to since I've been there. You may have noticed her thick accent. But one of the important things she mentioned was not liking rules. Why is that? Sylvia escaped from communist Czechoslovakia after the Soviets had invaded her country in 1968. But the initial communist invasion started when she was very young.
2: In '53, the communists absolutely confiscated everything. Uh, my, all, all my family owned um, lots of properties, restaurants, uh, stores, uh, cars. I remember as a four-year-old, five-year-old, I don't remember now exactly, uh, watching the commissars coming uh, and taking our cars. My grandma had this This huge black car. She had a chauffeur because she didn't know how to drive. Uh, Then my father had this sports car, (laughs) the English sports car, and my mother had just a plain, uh, you know, middle-sized car. But the commissars came and took all three cars. And I remember as a child, watching from the window and saying hmm I wonder where they are taking that (laughs) but uh, I remember as a child the commissars would come at three four o'clock in the morning uh, and looking for stuff uh, you know jewelry uh, pictures uh, mm, fur coats and they would just confiscate that it didn't mean much to me then but and my grandma used to say uh, she lived with us Ah, it's just stuff. I'll make more money and buy you stuff. <laughs> I grew up uh, and went to school. I was ostracized because I was from the rich family. They, and the teachers would say to me, you are no good. And I, I remember thinking, why? What did I do? And I couldn't comprehend that I'm not good because I, I, I am from a former rich family. But, again, my grandma always stood by me, and she said to me, whatever you have in your head, the communists cannot take away from you. Be the best you can be. Reach for the stars. And that's what I did. I, was, I, I, hard, I worked very, very, very hard in school, and uh, I did well. Um, my grandma was a very big influence on me and she's been dead for 43 years, but there is not one day that I don't think about her.
10: Then things began to change, seemingly for the better.
2: Then around 66, 67, the situations became a little bit better. We used to have a little bit of a freedom, for example, freedom of press and freedom of expression. And it was all thanks to the president, who was Dubček, D-U-B-C-E-K. And he didn't want us to stop being a communist country. All he really wanted a little bit of freedom. But in August 21, uh, 1968, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and the news was don't panic, stay indoors. The Soviet invaded your country. We were in total disbelief because we did not believe we did anything wrong. All we were asking was for a little bit of freedom. But the Soviets, our Soviet army came and invaded Czechoslovakia. They also invaded Poland. How old were you? Uh, I was 18.
10: So Sylvia and her mother knowing and experiencing the evils of communism, decided to plan their escape, which was no easy task.
2: That was it for me because I felt there is no future for me anymore. You know how 18 year old, we are sort of, at that time, I think I was selfish. I only thought about myself and I just was very forceful. I said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to escape. And at that time, because of the Soviet army and you know nobody really was guarding the borders and nobody really knew what they were doing. However, the old rule was that before you can leave Czechoslovakia you need a permission from the Minister of Interior um, Affairs and then you needed a visa to go to a country of your choice. So Okay, my mother and I went to the Minister of Internal Affairs and stood in line with our passports and all of a sudden somebody shouting, the Soviets are coming, the soldiers are going to be here, if they catch you with your passport they are going to take you and maybe you'll end up a couple days in jail. My mother said, let's don't run outside, let's go and run and hide in the building. (laughs) So we went in a cellar and uh, I spent a whole night just huddling in a a cellar with my mother. Uh, Luckily, I was (laughs) young and very skinny. So in the morning, we still didn't want to use the front door to exit because they were going to ask us, you know, what were you doing here this early in the morning? So there was a tiny little window in the cellar room. So I crawled through it, and my mother was always tiny, so she, she fitted it uh, through the window, too. And we just pretended like, you know, we are on a stroll here. So we were not stopped, and we kept our passports.
0: And when we come back, we're going to hear more of Sylvia and her mom's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. More after these messages, Faith's visit to the villages, and Sylvia... And her story, again here on Our American Stories... is Our American Stories, and we continue with Sylvia's story. In the last segment, we learned about her, her hatred of rules and where it came from. We learned that quickly. And how Czechoslovakia, notice how they vilified the wealthy first, because then the rest of the folks could hate the wealthy, but then it was the upper middle class, then it was the middle class, and pretty soon, the communists had confiscated everything. So when you hear the 1% getting vilified, just remember what's really going on. But let's go back to the story and to Sylvia's story, and faith at the villages.
10: I cannot imagine how scary that must have been, but they were determined to still flee from the country. However, her grandmother was not fit to take the trip. So after the night of staying in the cellar, Sylvia and her grandmother had an important conversation.
2: We came home, and at that time we were living in an apartment that had a very long, dark hallway. And my grandma was on one side, and you know, as an 18 year old, I'm saying, Grandma, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I cannot live here anymore. And my grandma turned around and said, Yes that's a good decision and I, I said why isn't she saying something, why isn't she saying don't go or you know and I think she was crying because she wanted me to go and that was the hardest, hardest
10: happening to me and your grandmother, she, you said she was crying, was that because she knew you needed to go I think she, she felt it's better for me if I leave.
2: But of course, she was the one who raised me because my mother worked at the university. And like I said, my father was architect, always working somewhere else. So I was raised by my grandma and we were extremely, extremely close. But I think she felt for me to have a better life is to let me go and I never saw her again. I think she was just totally unselfish because I think if I would have known that she was crying and that she didn't want me to leave, perhaps I wouldn't have left. But she she hid that from me because she wanted me to go. She wanted me to have a better life. And the communist regime actually fell but 19 years later. So. You know, I was 18 when I left, but to living under the communism for 19 more years, I don't think that was acceptable for her or for me.
6: What are other things that you remember your grandmother telling you? (laughs) She always told me
2: to make friends with smarter people than I am, (laughs) because you can always learn from them. My grandma was an extremely strong woman who who would never let herself be defeated. You know, no matter what came, what the communists dealt, you know, they took her two stores, her two beautiful restaurants, her apartment building complex that she had, they took our home where I was raised, and it never faced her. She said, that's okay. I'll, I'll make more money and we'll, we'll have something else. The example she gave me was the one and I'm still living by it because she was an outstanding woman. And I'm really happy that I had somebody like that in my life. Too bad my sons never met her, but I've been telling them the stories about her. So <laughs> I hope something stuck. She always said, You see the stars there, reach for them. And when I, you know, she always asked me, what do you want to be, you know, what do you want to study? And she always said, it doesn't matter. Whatever you study, it will be okay. She would never say, you cannot be a doctor or you cannot, uh, you know, do this. She would say, oh, go get the stars. You know, they can take your jewelry, you know, but they cannot take whatever you have in your, you know, your brain, they cannot take that. So basically, she was telling me to learn every day of your life. Uh, life, Just learn, learn, learn.
10: So after saying goodbye to her grandmother, Sylvia and her mother took their chances for a better life and headed toward the border, not knowing what would happen to them.
2: So we left, my mother and I left, and uh, to this day, I do, and we went by train, and to this day, I don't know how it happened because the Soviet soldiers came and questioned everybody. And I spoke Russian because everybody had to, in schools, you had to uh, take Russian as a second language. But to this day, I don't know what I was saying to that soldier. But he let us go. So, I don't know what happened, but we end up in Vienna, Austria. We had absolutely no money. We had absolutely (laughs) nothing to where to stay or how to feed ourselves. (laughs) So um, we went to a convent. We also spoke German because that was my third language that I had to take and they said, you can stay with us but you have to work for your uh, food and <laughs> it was really funny because I was, all my young adult life, I was such a spoiled <laughs> child. I never I never cooked, I never did dishes, I never cleaned floors or washed clothes and all of a sudden <laughs> I'm working, <laughs> you know, cleaning floors for my food. <laughs> but I did it, you know, because uh, I always felt you have to do what you have to do. And so we stayed uh, in a convent for eight and a half months, uh, working for our lodging and for our food. And the nuns were very, very kind to us. Of course, the work was hard, but the food was good. (laughs) The nine months in Austria were very, very difficult, very difficult. And not even... The food or the lodging or whatever—it was the what will happen tomorrow. Not knowing was was really really difficult. Y- you know, I was 18, but my mother was 48, and it was extremely difficult for her because she left. You know, her her job at the university, her friends, and um, she had a harder time learning the foreign language. Right? She was older. She was older. So it was very difficult for her. So not only my grandma sacrificed herself, but also my mother.
10: Of course, they could not stay at the convent forever. So they first attempted to get into the U.S.
2: After eight and a half months, I uh, we were trying to immigrate to U.S. But the U.S. did not recognize us for political asylum. So uh, they said, well, you have to go to a like something like a work camp and wait there. So my mother said, "I'm not going to do that with an 18-year-old girl." So at that time, the Canada opened the borders, and they would work. They were welcoming immigrants. Uh, so uh, that's what we did. I we ended up in Montreal, Canada, and at that time, the Montreal was a little bit separatist. Uh, however. Uh, I didn't speak English and I didn't speak French at that time, they said, the immigration said to us, if you start taking French lessons, we are going to pay you $25 a week. My goodness gracious, $25 a week to me was like a million (laughs) dollars. So I gladly said, oh yeah, I will learn French, no problem. So all we had to do is just show up downtown. They had buses for us. They took us to school where we had French speakers teaching us. I spent four and a half months every day learning French. So after the four and a half months, I was quite
10: fluent. (laughs) So now she lived in Canada and got a very special job. She was able to become a tour guide for an expo called Man and His World, giving VIP tours even giving tours for the Czechoslovakian section. But because she had fled the country illegally, she needed a bodyguard, just in case someone wanted to take her back to the country.
0: And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Sylvia's story, and I had to fight back tears listening to her account of grandma just holding it back and sending her little girl off. What an act of love. And just a beautiful, beautiful story. And by the way, a little history lesson for those of us who don't know the ravages of communism and bad government. More of Sylvia's story, Faith's story at the Villages, after these messages. This is our American stories and Sylvia and her mother had arrived in Canada and they'd begun their new lives. But how is it that she got into the United States? Let's return to the story.
10: In the fall and spring, she went to school and worked at Man in His World during the summer, which is where she so happened to meet her man.
2: One day, after a really hard day, I had lots of VIP tours, I was sitting at the end of the pavilion mining the guest book. You know, that was like, can relax now. All of a sudden, I see this tall, very, very, very handsome guy staring at me. And, you know, I, I was used to it, you know. I had uniform and, you know, and uh, so this guy comes and starts speaking English. I said, I don't understand English. So he starts communicating with his hands, and he said he would like my address because he wants to send me a postcard from Pittsburgh. So I did that. Three months later, he came back. I saw him one more time, so three times altogether, and I married him. I didn't speak English, and he didn't speak French. So... I, I'm still married to him, 46 years later, and three sons. Now I speak English. <laughs> so, but we are we are together. We are happy, and uh, that's how I ended up in America. And I absolutely love America. I think America is the best country ever. I'm very very grateful that I I had such an opportunity from a little Slovak country. <laughs> to come here and enjoy uh, everything America has to offer. I made sure that three of my sons, that my sons, three of them, we travel extensively because I wanted them to know different cultures and different people. And, but every time we would come back to US, I would tell him, get on your knees and thank God that you were born in this country.
10: So you married someone after seeing them three times? Yes. but not sca- really
2: speaking. Were you scared? Of course. Of course. Why'd well, you do it? The the hardest part was already done. The hardest part was was leaving the country. I thought after that I can do anything.
10: You were married and you didn't know English. Right. I mean what was that like?
2: I was funny because we were still having arguments. <laughs> My husband he would force me into speaking English. He would give me these uh, jobs, like call the water company and ask them about how many gallons do we use a day or something like that. And I would sit by the phone with a stomach ache, but I would still do it. And it wasn't easy. He would take me to parties. And I, I I, just didn't know how to speak to people. Uh, the people would say, oh, you are, she must be really stupid because she's sitting in a corner. But it was because I didn't speak the language. You know, that's a human nature. If they don't understand something, maybe you don't really find out what's going on. Yeah, that's true. It's easier that way.
10: Experiencing what she had, Sylvia wanted to make sure her sons understood What it means to live in america she made many sacrifices when she fled and although we know that she left her grandmother back home she also left her father
2: my father uh my father was an architect but his heart was broken because he was an artist also and he wanted to build colorful buildings with lots of windows and of course that was not permitted in in the communist regime so I never really knew him as well uh, because he was always gone as a punishment I I didn't see him when I was leaving so I didn't say goodbye to him and uh, the communication between my grandma and my father was very sketchy very seldom because we were afraid that if they get letters from US or Canada, they will be punished. But then I found out that he was uh, seriously ill with cancer. So I called the hospital and I explained the situation that I'm his daughter and I am living in the US. And I asked the doctor who was uh, taking care of my father if he is okay with me talking to him because he could, the doctor could be punished by allowing somebody from U.S. talking to his patient. But he said, no, I will. I will let your father talk to you. Uh, but my father was, I guess, in so much pain and not really, he didn't understand what was going on because I said, hello, father, this is your daughter. And he said, I have no daughter. And that was the last I heard from him. He died two weeks later. So, uh, you know, life is not, not easy, but uh, that's the only life we have. So we have to make the best out of everything that happens to us.
10: He didn't even remember her. Although she left for a much better life and indeed got one, that did not mean that leaving was easy. So, what exactly are Sylvia's thoughts towards those who may not appreciate the US the way that she does? You see, the, the problem with
2: America, they, they're afraid of, some people are afraid to fail. And why? You, sh- you could fail. It, it, if you learn something from your mistakes or for, from your failure, that's okay. Just pick up and start again. And I think everybody here is just, you know, they they don't want to work hard sometimes. They just want a good job, a lot of money. Well, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you have to work hard. You cannot have money if you don't do anything for it.
10: Well, because for you, failure would have been basically, you know, being caught as you were trying to escape. The worst thing already happened to me, so...
2: What else can happen, you know?
10: Sylvia has had an interesting life, to say the least. And now she has settled down in The Villages, Florida. So what exactly does she do these days? I
2: realize that basically they give you all sorts of opportunities to do this or that. Or if you don't want to, that's okay too. And I like that because I love dancing. Again, going back to my grandma she believed that females must be very graceful so i started with ballet at age three i was dancing all my life so that that is totally amazing that right now i'm dancing my son thinks i'm really crazy by doing this but that's okay i'm dancing until i i cannot
10: (laughs) it always came back to her grandmother the person who told her to reach for the stars, no matter the circumstance. Thank you, Sylvia. I know this was an emotional story to share. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories, reporting to you from The Villages, Florida.
0: And great job as always, Faith. And, you know, you really did get to meet the grandmother. I mean, the grandmother ends up being the star of this piece. I mean, Sylvia is fabulous, but the grandmother, be still my heart, and, by the way, the sons that she said never got to meet her grandma, their grandmother, oh, they, the great-grandmother, gran, great oh, they did. They did in countless and endless stories about their great-grandmother and her grandmother. This is Lee Habib, Sylvia's story, Faith's story, the two of them coming together, total strangers, to learn a little about each other and about the world. This is Our American Stories. This is our american story and today on our nation's founding we celebrate the things that make this country great we often hear about the lives of our founding fathers how much they accomplished for the sake of our independence but rarely do we hear about how they died shadrach one of our hillsdale interns has a story about the death of two of our greatest founding fathers and one of the greatest coincidences in american history
13: It was July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Festivities all around the U.S. were in full swing. Towns held parades, fired celebratory cannons, and featured public readings of the Declaration of Independence. The town of Quincy, Massachusetts held one such festival. These events featured lengthy orations on the history and future of the United States, given by prominent political and religious leaders. For many... This 50-year milestone was the beginning of something great, proof that the American experiment might have some longevity. A group of men visited the home of former President John Adams, one of the few living founding fathers, alongside Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. They asked Adams if he would be willing to speak on this momentous day. In honor of the country, he helped found. Noticing that his health seemed to be failing, they asked him if there was anything he would like to say to the people of his town. Adams thought for a moment, looked up, and said, Independence forever. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were both titans of the American Revolution. Despite their vastly different upbringings, they were both genuine friends. Here's Professor of History at Hillsdale College, Dr. Richard Gamble.
9: I think Adams and Jefferson were more than allies of convenience. I mean, they came from two very different sections of colonial america one the son of uh, puritan, new Eng- puritan new england one one a son a son of, of virginia, plan- virginia plantations but i think they made common cause sincerely uh, respected each other
13: adams and jefferson worked side by side on the declaration of independence both men recommended each other to write the first draft of the declaration with Adams selflessly giving up the honor because he believed Jefferson to be a better writer. Jefferson and Adams worked together during the revolution, hoping to secure independence from Great Britain. In the election of 1796, Adams beat Jefferson to become the second president of the United States, leaving Jefferson to be his vice president. Jefferson and Adams routinely butt heads during this time, with Jefferson advocating for a more hands-off approach to government, while Adams valued a strong central control. The moment that defined this division was the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Acts made it harder to become a citizen, allowed massive deportations, and criminalized certain forms of speech that were critical of the federal government. Jefferson deemed these decisions traitorous to the Constitution, publicly reprimanding Adams. Their relationship was never the same, and the following election of 1800 has been called by many the first truly negative election.
9: We do find some really nasty politics uh, in 1800. The election of 1800 was characterized as an epic showdown between the Federalist Party of energetic government and the emerging Jeffersonian Republicans, the kinds of barbs that were traded against uh, one candidate or or another sometimes are really quite vicious. Uh, Jefferson was portrayed as irreligious, a man dangerous to the morals of America, to the Christian faith. Uh, Adams portrayed as a stuffy, puritanical New Englander, uh, too nationalist, too loyalist, too convinced of his own importance uh, and dignity and uh, contrary to the simple Republican principles of American government.
12: These
13: attacks further strained the two's relationship, and after Jefferson won the election, it seemed like the two would never reconcile. Years passed, and as they aged, the two began to miss each other's company. They often talked with mutual friends about reconnecting, but never made that final push. Eventually, the two finally made the
9: connection. John Adams' wife, Abigail, And a mutual friend, and a friend of Jefferson's as well, named uh, Benjamin Rush, uh, the Philadelphian physician and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, there were conversations, uh, a feeling out, a testing the waters to see if these two old, uh, venerable champions of American liberty could come back together uh, could repair the rift in their long friendship. And it was through the help of Abigail and Benjamin Rush that the two were able to resume a correspondence.
13: Adams and Jefferson wrote back and forth for 14 years. And what exactly did these venerable champions of liberty write about?
9: They talked about everything. They talked about their achievement back at the time of the revolution. They talked about their presidencies. They talked about their legacy. They talked about education in detail and at great length. They discussed Jefferson's plans for the University of Virginia and the curriculum and the faculty. They gossiped about friends of theirs. Uh, They talked about old age. And as they came to be one of the Uh, To be numbered among the three survivors, the only three survivors of those who signed the original declaration, they talked about mortality.
13: And as the sun rose on July 4th, 1826, both men were elderly and increasingly frail. Thomas Jefferson was 83 and John Adams was 90. A day before, at his home of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's health began to fail.
9: Jefferson knew clearly that his time was short. His health was failing rapidly. He was quite coherent up until not long before he died. He slept most of the day on July the 3rd, and he was starting to mix up uh, day and night, and he woke up in the evening of July the 3rd. And we have pretty, pretty good confidence that he said something very close to is it July the 4th, or it is July the 4th? And he was told that, no, it is, it is not, but almost. We're very close. There were times when he seemed very confused. He seemed to be dreaming, if not hallucinating, that he was back in the days of the revolution. He said he needed to correspond with uh, the committees of safety. And at one point, he even began to gesture as though he was writing at a desk and sending instructions to the uh, committees of safety. So that's where his mind was. And uh, the next day, uh, at, uh, which was, of course, July the 4th, uh, he passed away at 12.50 p.m. By all indications from all who were there with him in his last days, Uh, He was resigned to die. He was not fretful about it. There was something philosophical uh, about his approach to death. It was not a matter to be feared.
13: One of the United States' greatest founding fathers dying on the 4th of July, and on the 50th anniversary, no less. But that's only half of the story.
9: Up in Quincy, Massachusetts, at the family home, John Adams was uh, dying that same day. And we don't have the kinds of records for Adam's death that we have for Thomas Jefferson's. There was only one person with him when he died. There was uh, a woman with him who was a bit of a distant relative uh, related to his wife. And we will never know exactly what John Adams' final words may have been. But he seems, there seems to be that clear testimony that he said at least Thomas Jefferson But there are other stories that he said Thomas Jefferson survives.
13: And so, on the same day, mere hours away from each other, Adams and Jefferson died on July 4th, 50 years after they had stood side by side and helped sign the United States into existence. These were two men who seemed tied together by destiny. A pair of unlikely friends who worked together to declare and defend independence— fought each other on the grounds of some of America's oldest questions of freedom versus security, fell away from each other in anger, their friendship a victim of increasingly brutal party politics, and reconciled their differences for the sake of a lasting and beautiful friendship. In one of his letters to Jefferson, Adams asked if he would live his life over again. Jefferson responded, You ask if I would agree to live my 70 or rather 73 years over again? To which I say, yay. I think with you that it is a good world, on the whole, that it has been framed on a principle of benevolence. I steer my bark with hope in the head, leaving fear astern. When Adams said, Jefferson survives, he was wrong. But maybe he wasn't. These are two men whose legacies seem to outlive them. And today, as we celebrate our nation's founding, their story is as alive as as ever. And great job on
0: that, Shadrach. And thank you, too, to Professor Richard Gamble over at Hillsdale College. And nobody does this stuff better. And if you want to actually take some free courses, they're available at hillsdale.edu. You don't have to go to Hillsdale. Hillsdale can come to you. And when you get a chance, pop up some of their courses. They're just terrific. This is Our American Stories Jefferson and Adam's story, they're remarkable, remarkable lives and how they came to an end.